we, it was not difficult to find science that backed up when you're selfless, you're not only happier, you live longer, you look better. Those are the things that completely surprised me. It would say, therefore, that a healthy human is a selfless human. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia. Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We also want to give a special shout-out to some of our podcast listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Cindy Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Trump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee's School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Richard Louis. He is a journalist with MSNBC with over 30 years of television, film, technology, and business experience. He is an Emmy and Peabody winner. Richard is also a business in the business sector, launching six tech brands over three business cycles. He's the author of a new book, Enough About Me. Richard, thank you for joining the conversation. Andy, thanks for having me. So you're an Emmy and Peabody winner, but uh, take us back to where it all started. Why journalism? It's kind of a, a late bloomer kind of career. Um, I think, you know, I was trying to think when I sort of had the idea that I might consider becoming a journalist. And it probably goes back to church camp in high school. We we drive up from San Francisco to Lake Tahoe, which is like, you know, in the summer, maybe a three hour drive in the winter. It could be like a 12 hour drive because of the snow, but it's up in the mountains and, um, me and a buddy of mine, because evidently we, we thought we were really creative, um, would start writing every night. It's a, it was, I think, like a 10-day camp. But we would start writing around 11 p.m. or 10 p.m. about 
the um, events of the day at the at this church camp as a family camp. And uh, and then we'd run to the copy uh, shop and make a whole bunch of copies around 6 a.m., come back and slip it underneath the, the doors of everybody. And it was, we would not, there would be no byline. You did not know who wrote it. And that is kind of my first journalistic experience. And I don't know what kind of prompted us to do it. We I, recently, when I was writing the book, because it's my first book, I was I wanted to get a copy of it um, of one of our um, one of our uh, papers, uh, which was called the Daily Bugle. And I have moved around so much, I don't have anything. But my my buddy is pretty much still in the same city, and so he went through all of his boxes and he couldn't find it. So I'd say that that's the first. And then I, I did nothing but business for another bunch of years. And then I went, uh, excuse me, then I went to, you know, that was high school. Then I ended up working at Mrs. Fields for five years. And I went to City College of San Francisco. Uh, and then I finally transferred to a four-year over at Berkeley. And then again, as when I revisited uh, journalism again as a radio reporter, news reporter, that was 10 years later, roughly. And then after that, didn't do anything for about 15 years and then left um, business and consulting and, and was working for Citibank for a little bit to work in, in journalism. So it's, it's been a really strange sort of arc. It, it wasn't baked in from the beginning, if you will. And who knows what else is therefore baked in that I don't know about. You know, these last few years of an embattled and controversial uh, presidency dovetailing into a global pandemic have elevated most people's stress and anxiety. Uh, recently, I was listening to an interview with Stephen Colbert with Jake Tapper, and they were both talking about how much they've aged by reporting on all these shenanigans over these last four or five years. You know, with the nature of, of news today and the divisiveness in our culture over just about everything, how do you face these challenges each day as a journalist? Oh, you know, I think, Andy, it's been tough, but at the same time, um, for many of us, uh, an honor to be serving our country this way as journalists and to try to get uh, it right. And not always, you know, I myself don't always get it right, but what an amazing place where we have this built in fourth estate um, that our constitution says freedom of speech and a free press is essential to a strong democracy. That is not what I thought I'd ever say so many times as I have in the last, you know, five, six years. And I would travel with the state department to talk about journalism, um, in other countries. And the idea was that the shining light on the mountain was the United States when it came to a, a free press. And what happened is over the years, when I would travel, they would say, are you okay? Are you, is, is America okay on that? And that was really a switch in narrative. Cause you know, typically we'd go abroad to talk about good journalism in other countries and give them best practices. And I think all of that coming together showed that it made me ask, why am I doing this? And so, as I mentioned about our our constitution and our the very values that are built into our democracy, um, it has been tough, but it has been invigorating at the same time. It is it is what 
this institution of journalism was built to do. And um, I don't know the state of uh, the industry per se, like I couldn't put a thumb on it. I would just say that most journalists are stronger and better and more clear at why they're doing this thing. And it hasn't been easy, as you mentioned, but on the other side of the ledger, it's been supremely um, benef beneficial to, to most of us, I think. Do you feel like you've aged at all? <laughs> <laughs> I have. I mean, I have aged in, in, in um, maybe not because of that, but more because of everything that's happening around around it. Um, but yeah, it's, it has been it has been a challenging bunch of years. You're the first Asian American to anchor a daily national cable news program. Uh, over the last year, the hate crimes against Asian Americans has escalated significantly. Uh, but for many from this community, this is nothing new. I, I, I wonder if you might share your experience growing up in this country and the type of discrimination you received rising through the ranks of, of journalism. You know, there are a lot of people that look like me, Andy, uh, in this business. And when I first joined CNN and then MSNBC and 30 Rock and NBC News, and before that, when I was at Channel News Asia, I, I knew that there weren't a lot of Asian American males in the business. And um, it's a supply problem and it's a demand problem. And so when we see these microaggressions that are carried out on a daily basis, like where are you from, where are you really from, you know, and I would go through this at nauseum as long as the interlocutor could handle it. I'm from California. Now, where are you really from? San Francisco. Uh, where's your dad from? He's from San Francisco. Where's he really from? Chinatown. He was born there. Uh, what about your grandparents? Where are they from? California. You know, that sort of back and forth. And I, I, I say that that uh, dialogue in jest, but it, I can't tell you how many times I've had that conversation where it might be just once, like, where are you from? Like, well, where do you think I'm from? You know, um, and those are, that's an example of, of the little things that add up to a big thing. When we see this phenomenon of anti-Asian hate, what it is for many Americans of Asian descent or other is that they feel like they've been stripped naked. They feel like they don't know who they really are then, you know, because we thought we were American. We thought we were, you know, part of the great fabric that is our country. And when you see writ large, a common approach to this community as not being a human, not being human, that is really shakes you down to your bone. Why is it that people are beating up on senior citizens that happen to be Asian descent? Why are people stabbing people, Americans who happen to be of Asian descent? Why are they st stomping on them and kicking them in the face? Why are they randomly, you know, uh, trying to loot and, and rob them? Why is it that? And it's, it's often from a subcultural sort of perspective that they won't fight back and they ain't equal. They're not equal like I am. And, and I'm saying I meaning the assailants. That's a problem. And so it is both um, awe, awe inspiring, if you will, because I'm, I'm awestruck by how bad it is. But on the flip side, I'm very inspired by 
the good stuff, the good people stepping forward and the, the things that people are learning because of this horrible phenomenon. You know, as you said, there's, there's folks that are responding positively and, and, and to a certain regard in you know, this conversation parallels, um, what many from the black community have been screaming for, uh, I mean, hundreds of years in our, in our country. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and folks tend to want to get the easy answer. They want the easy things they can do to help solve this problem. But what are the, what are the challenging things that it will take to uh, create a greater sense of, of equality, uh, a greater sense of, um, of care for people, um, no matter their nationality or uh, country of origin? What are the things that can be done, you're asking, Andy? Yeah, uh, not from a theoretical standpoint, from from a practical, you know, we want the easy things, but what are the hard things that we need to hear right now? Uh, Asian American Pacific Islanders are seen as foreigners. Not in a always an active way, most often in a passive way. Um, jet black hair, you know, eyes, complexion, all of these things. Um, despite being here for 200 years and it's never about how long you've been here right our country's built on it don't matter where you where, how long you've been here so long as you're here and um i i think that the tough things that need to change are that we put in the some of the affectations of what it means to be what i just described uh is there an asian american pacific islander smithsonian museum is that are there historical sites in, across America that show and reflect the great pride that uh, AAPIs, Asian American Pacific Islanders, have lived through at, uh, over the centuries? You know, my grandfather was a sheet metal worker in Long Beach, California, helping to build the Liberty ships. One of the few things that he held a great pride was that he helped to build the Liberty ships for World War II to bring the United States and the allies to victory. He would always show me the picture of the fly. He'd show me the flyer that he got every time they built 200 Liberty ships, those supply ships, they got, a, they put out a flyer to celebrate it. And my grandfather typed out the date he got it. He put it on the wall and he framed it. He loved this country. His sons then joined the military and served in the Navy and Army. And some of these historical narratives, even for folks like myself, it's a little strange for me to even tell those stories, right? Because I'm not, because we don't talk about them. In general, we don't talk about them. So I think there's some big things that can be a march on the mall. Um, this particular community has never had a real civil rights moment. And I mean, a moment where they responded and they answered the call. The call right now is, are you really not a perennial foreigner? Are you really an equal American? And what is that historical answer? So that the not only the 200,000 babies that were born in this last year of hate that happened to look like me, that they would, when they're in middle school and high school, Andy, and in, in, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 years from now, that they see in the history books that the community and or the country overall responded because that's the, the those are the values we hold 
both culturally, nationally, and religiously. Let's change gears a little bit. Um, you have a new book out, uh, Enough About Me, The Unexpected Power of Selflessness. Uh, we'll get to uh, the core backstory behind the formation of this book momentarily, but you wrote, some scholars have argued for years that humans are not naturally selfless. And some social scientists went beyond this claim saying that pure altruism does not exist. Survival, not virtue, is what motivates us. You come from a what could be perceived as a dog-eat-dog world in which journalists and television personalities are fighting for more words in a column or more time on, on the screen. You know, going into the process of, of writing this book, were, were you apprehensive to believe that selflessness exists in our world? I was not. Um, but what I did as you, in the excerpt that you pulled from the book, Andy, was I did approach it in a very, to the best of my ability in a prove it to me with science and research, please. And because anecdotally in my reporting, although I reported all, I have reported unfortunately on a lot of mass killings that have kept me on air for hours and hours. And although those individuals, you know, epitomize pure selfishness because they decided their point of view was so right that they could take another's life. Um, there was nothing worse except what made me feel like we are very capable of being selfless more often are generally in all of these cases where I had a mass shooter or a mass killer. Or I had, you know, for instance, issues around race. There were always 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 people around that one selfish act that instead showed me we are very capable of being selfless people. And in the book, I cannot help but hold up those stories of individuals that were so selfless in the face of what was, um, could be said was evil, uh, but certainly. The, the worst of the selfish notion that we all might be, that it, it definitely proved out to me in, in my view that we are exactly the opposite, all things being equal, and that we, we're just not going to be perfect, but we will be more often selfless than we will be selfish. The backstory behind this book is is remarkable. Um, your career is rising in all the right places. Things are going where you want them to go. And then you find out that your dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Um, you had a very difficult decision to make about how you would move forward as, as a son. Take us into this moment and into that decision-making experience. I just never thought, Andy, that I'd be the guy asking for less time on TV, you know, here I am a broadcast journalist. Um, not that I'm even as smart as a, a surgeon, but it's like, a, you know, a surgeon asking to do fewer surgeries, if you will. Because um, we were measured by often how how many stories that we can get out that need to be shared. But my boss, actually, when I walked into her office, I thought she was going to tell me, sorry, Richard, nice guy, like working with you. But, you know, we don't have a job that's part-time. We have a, a job that's eight days a week 
square peg, round hole. And instead she says, I'm a caregiver too, Richard. Let's figure out how to make this work. And so sure enough, um, a week later, we came back and we had four ideas of how I could still help to care for my father in California. I'm in New York working. And I started working a Friday, Saturday, Sunday shift and flying um, on the other days to the West and then flying back to work. And I actually spent more days in California than any other place. Um, and effectively that was my home. Um, yet my job was in New York. So I was really uh, surprised um, that she would do that, but then began, and I didn't know at the, at the time, then began the sort of seedling to, dis to discover this anti-self self-help book. Um, and it, it is very much a sort of a self-help book, but to look at it as an anti-self self-help book. Um, but I believe that its beginnings started right about then just the, but without even knowing it, right. You just, I, when I have to, if I have to look back, that's when I'd say it started, but I wasn't knowing that it would be this in the end. Altruism uh, to be noble, philanthropy and, and selflessness are, are all words thrown around to describe people who out of their benevolence give towards others that are less fortunate. You know, I think of all the examples from this pandemic, a, a celebrity giving to charity as they boost the numbers of their likes and subscribers on their pandemic stay at home order YouTube channel. Uh, so I wonder if you might define for us selflessness as you see it. I think that more often than not, selflessness is not subtractive, but additive, that it is one plus one equals three. That is more often than not me losing something in order to give to somebody else. That it is often uh, joy despite difficulty. That, um, that it is bite-sized, that it's accessible on a daily basis, even on a fifth, every 15 minute basis, as I share in the book, you know, there are scientists that believe we make some sort of conscious decision every 15 minutes. Every one of those opportunities are to do something selfless, that to be selfless does not mean always Desmond Tutu and mother Teresa, that in fact, it probably means the everyday things that we might reconsider and that those ex opportunities to be accessible to it are ones we should think about because it builds muscle and it builds the selfless muscle so that when the big things happen, we're ready to jump. And a good example of that sort of daily muscle tone development are the healthcare workers in the last year who we would interview in the press, they would be on their phone in a car, crying, angry, completely confused. But yet in the end, when they're done with our interview, go right back into the hospital. And that was an example of them building up the selfless muscle because they were used to serving other people that may have afflictions that they could catch themselves. In this case, they didn't even know what this new affliction was exactly they still showed up and that's like i think a great analogy to me that you know doing the something every day to build the muscle tone really does work 
Let's not wait until we retire to do the selfless gesture, right? Let's not save our, our, our billions of dollars, if you will, and then give back that we would do it along the way instead. Because for the majority of us, that's the way we're going to change the, the balance. Looking to learn about pastoral care in order to enhance your skills as a minister, lay leader, deacon, or member of a community? BSK's Pastoral Care Certificate allows students to earn credentials in pastoral care through a short three-course certificate. Students working towards a certificate in pastoral care will integrate knowledge and experience from both courses and experience in order to develop deeper skills in caring for persons who are in crisis and are suffering. The certificate is a great strategy to improve one's care and counseling as a congregational pastor and other congregational leaders. It will prepare persons to serve in chaplaincy settings, whether paid or volunteer, where a degree and professional certificate as a chaplain is not required, such as law enforcement, fire departments, some prisons, and extended care facilities. The certificate requires nine hours graduate credit that may be rolled into a graduate degree program. BSK certificates may be continuing education for those already earned a graduate degree or starting place for those considering an MDiv. Learn more at bsk.edu options. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. In the book, you, you cited research conducted by Harvard Business School and the University of British Columbia that wanted to look at human, uh, the human body's response to selfishness and selflessness. The study found that there is a, a correlation between happiness and generosity, um, finding that people that spend as little as $5 on somebody else elevates the level of eufor- euphoria and relaxation, energy and sociability within uh, their brain. So so are we cognitively made to be selfless? Uh, does, does it really lead to healthier and happier lives? Those studies and more, I mean, the, I, so part of the team was a scientist and an assist, assistant researcher. And we, it was not difficult to find science that backed up when you're selfless, you're not only happier, you live longer, you look better, those are the things that completely surprised me. And um, it would say, therefore, that a healthy human is a selfless human. And the sorts of studies that we dug into, and we did some original research on our own as well, sure did point to that, Andy, that we are, you know, better off when we're selfless. And based on the sort of the chemical measurements of cortisol, which is the stress chemical, and the, the reduction of that and the increase of oxytocin and dopamine in various contexts, one of which you, you just brought up in one study, showed that overall, this stuff is like the wonder drug, if you will, 
to be to be giving and to be selfless. And, and so, yeah, we, we do cite study after study in the book about that, because the perspective was here that, you know, we wanted it to be an instruction manual. We wanted it to be very practical. We wanted it to address the swing doer, the person that might do something differently and consider something to, to be done in a selfless way. And so that's why you see the science in there and the science proves out uh, from what we able to put together in the team that, yeah, it really is better for your health. It really is better for how long you live. Unintended, not the direct reason, right? But a lot of good uh, side effects, if you will. I want to go back to your parents for a, a few moments. Uh, your story and their story are interwoven throughout the book. How how is their life and character informed how you approach this conversation on selflessness? I think my dad's laughing all the way, Andy. Uh, here he is a pastor. He's got his kid to write a book on selflessness, the golden rule, right? <laughs> and uh, although my dad's eight years into Alzheimer's and can't talk anymore and can't walk and can't eat orally anymore, I kind of laugh inside going, see, he got his kid to do something that, you know, was, was good for good for the order, if you will. I think both of them were influential, just as most of our parents are in showing how to live. My father being a youth pastor, and then he couldn't pay for the pay, pay the bills for the family under that salary, he becomes a social worker, um, still can't pay the bills. And my mom stays at home to care for the four children. Uh, she's a school teacher. And when she goes back to teach, they keep on saying, Rose, we want to make you a vice principal. Rose, we want to move you to this other school where you can make more money. It's a better school, higher scoring. And my mom would always come back and say, I said no. And we go like, Mom, what are you, crazy? She said, well, because I am there to teach those who need the most help. And in fact, her final school before she retired was the school elementary school that had the most um, uh, incidents of, of violence and, and the lowest scoring. And I, th I don't think they ever said, well, you see, you got to do the things that we're doing. Um, but I think that kind of logged in the back of all of our brains in my family in, in that it was important to try to live that way and that you can, it may be difficult, which it was for us because because of their decisions, we grew up on the, the benefits of the welfare system and, and had food stamps, for instance. So do I like mac and cheese from a white box? I do. Do I like spam from a can? I do. Do I like block cheese? Love it. And these are the things that they were willing to do. Um, but again, never shook a finger at us, never professed that we needed to do exactly what they were doing. And I think that over the years kind of stuck in the back of my brain. And so when it came to making a decision about my career and then about this book, like this is a, really above my pay grade, Andy, way, 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 way ab above my pay grade. What it is, is it's an, a journalist's approach to a problem or an opportunity. And that's the way I tried to attack it. Cause I knew I am no expert on being selfless. Uh, I am a person who needs this book. Uh, more than anybody. And um, it's because of my parents approach to things to say, maybe above your pay grade, but you still got to try. 
So you're the beneficiary of remarkable people. Um, others don't grow up in that same type of culture and setting. Others are raised to always fight for what's best for me to, to get to the top, no matter who it hurts along the way. So I wonder in your research, can, can people learn to become selfless or, or does our upbringing and life experience mold on, I guess, for lack of better terms, unchangeable selfish pathways within our brain? So we looked at two studies um, with children. One was on, we call the Toblerone study, who, what kids would give away chocolate that they got, right? And then the other one was the circle and the square uh, and the triangle and um, the square and the triangle. And what they, they both showed was that, yes, there are studies that show that we are born uh, as selfless entities. And then there's others that show that we learn to, to be selfless. Um, and the Toblerone and the chocolate, you know, do we give it, we, in the, in the study showed earlier on that we would not give away chocolate as children. As we got older, we learned to give away more chocolate. The other one with the triangle and the square is like, which, which would the child identify as the positive figure or point to? Because uh, it, it is believed that that which you like is where your eyes go to. And so they were looking at the children's eyes and what were they drawn to the square that was you know pushing the boulder up the hill or the triangle that was pushing it down the hill and it showed that children liked uh pushing up the hill helping to get to the top so that is you know uh again we, we put out some some studies for you for everybody to consider about where we we begin and how and how we get there i think going back to the example of the healthcare workers that certainly is a context that says there is a way to build muscle around this to do it. So if that's true, then the answer is yes to your question um, and that we can learn it and that we, no matter where we start, that we can learn it and that we do like to learn it and we do see it as a positive value. Um, and that is what the book tries to do is to show the little things that we can do along the way to come closer to that value. Uh, and that it doesn't have to be a, a huge, huge guard. It can be, but it doesn't have to be a huge decision to change your lifestyle. Like you're moving across the country, right? It's not, it's not that it is very accessible. Your day is constantly flooded with what's going on around the world in the United States. Um, and you alluded to this earlier, you know, a recent study found that approximately 90% of all media news is, um, is negative. Um, do you ever get cynical about our capacity for things that you, you write about in this book? Mm, what I do notice here, Andy, is that we're living through a selfish pandemic that we are living through a time where hate and violence is cheap, where folks are treating others in ways that we never thought are possible. And we see the video and we go, is that really humanly possible? And, and so, yeah, this is not a, a good time when you look at the, the headlines. Does it make me cynical? It doesn't, it actually, this is personally, I see it as a great opportunity for all of us to stand up and hold dear uh, the values that we think are important. And, you know, I, 
I bring them up in this in this in the book as well, you know, uh, which you know uh, of those who have done so. Um, you know, Muhammad, who owns Sam's Meat Market in Ferguson, Missouri, who opens up a store during racial strife and protest and looting. And his store, you know, he has to lock the doors. They have to escape through the back. And the store gets looted and there's a fire and then they board it up and then they open the next day. And then the same day, same thing happens again on day number two, get looted, fire, stealing. And Muhammad still opens it up the, the third day. And I go in there and I ask him, you know, hey, Muhammad, my our journal so we had a uh, our location with all our cameras was right across the street from sam's meat market this is during michael brown and the protests in ferguson missouri and he says i've got customers in this community and i'm all they got because there aren't a lot of you know meat markets in this space there aren't a lot of shops that's why i open every day and my wife tells me i shouldn't and i tell her i have to this is where what I must do for this community. They don't have anybody else. And those sorts of selfless stories that happened all around, you know, whether it's a mass murder or it's a shooter in a car, those are the ones that uh, always say, yeah, there's an opportunity to, to think that we're all broken, but there's a lot more that tell us that we're not. Uh, this pandemic has has changed all of our lives in ways that we might not realize for years to come. And while we've seen tremendous acts of charity and compassion throughout the pandemic, we've also seen some pretty unsavory character from people. Uh, you know, for simple examples, people buying more toilet paper than humanly necessary or faking your ID to get vaccinated early. Um, I believe it was the the Tennessee governor who was quoted in saying, we're going to get a vaccine. One thing this vaccine will not solve or cure is selfishness. As you see a, a light, or as we see a light at the end of the tunnel of this pandemic, and people start to return to whatever new normal we're going to live into, what are some of the basic acts of selflessness that people can get started uh, down the road uh, of looking beyond themselves? One of the things is make a list of the three people that you would never, ever see yourself hanging out with. Who are those people? Like you could never ever see yourself hanging out with X, Y, or Z. And then go out and meet with them, have a lunch with them, do it three times. And there's a study that we, we explore in the book out of Stanford that put those who had prejudice against each other, whether it was black and white or Asian and Latino, whatever the case may be, and they measured these hundreds of pairings of people that just didn't like each other. And they measured the prejudice elements at the beginning and at the end of the study. The end of the study, they, that meant they had three lunches or three coffees or they met three times. And at the end of this of the study, for all of these respondents uh, on average, the stress measurements of prejudice went almost to just above zero. And these are things like, you know, cortisol, dopamine, oxytocin measurements, things like that, as well as a qualitative questionnaire. That is a really, I think, instructive to what we can do once we see the light of the, uh, at the end of the tunnel more readily. 
that'll get us to, I think, look outside ourselves and to get to know others in a way that's very constructive and very educational um, along the way. There's a, a something else we can do. It's just to, there's a gratitude app or there's like three popular ones. Um, get it, use it. It's a daily thing. I started using it a year ago and you kind of put in there what you're grateful for. And gratitude is a very strong cousin, if not a brother and sister, to selflessness. And write a gratitude letter to somebody, somebody that, that might be your mentor or a parent or a loved one, but what you're grateful for, and then read it to them. It shows that, again, the stress hormones like uh, stress chemicals like cortisol go down and that the happy chemicals like dopamine and oxytocin go up for a month after doing those gratitude letters. There's a lot of things we can do, and those are just some that we uh, try to work through as we were going through the process of the book. You're a journalist. Uh, for the most part, you're simply reporting on the news, putting it out there for people to, to take the information in and do whatever they will with it. This book's a little different. Uh, so, so what's your hope for your readers? I mean, the hope is that the, you, what you just asked, Andy, is that they would consider trying something that is uh, bite-sized. Uh, I think another hope for readers is that they would share a story of somebody who did something selfless. And it's a nice, easy way in because you're having to process what is selfless in order to tell it. And then you're also passing it on to others and, and being instructive about how to be selfless. So my collaborator, Nancy French, just this last week posted um, a flyer that was at the cleaners in her neighborhood. And the flyer on the door said, if you are down on your luck because of the current tough times and you need clean clothes for an interview, we will clean your clothes so you look good for your interview for free. Please come on in. And she shared that. It, uh, of course, went viral. But that's what we need. That's what's the good stuff to do. Well, if you want to stay connected with Richard, uh, check out his work at richardlouis.com. Follow him on social media. And of course, go out and purchase Enough About Me wherever books are sold. Uh, Richard, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. Uh, we're grateful for your extraordinary invitation to see the power, the health, and the strength in becoming selfless. Uh, Andy, thanks for having me. And I really appreciate you digging in on this value. Thank you so much. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. 
Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee's School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.